Stacey, I started talking about the governor's race, and it was a unique experience, I know, for you. Many milestones, many firsts. Can you talk about that experience a little bit and what it was like traveling to all 159 counties in the state of Georgia? Well, I first want to say thank you for taking the time to do this in the midst of all that you're doing for Time's Up and for women across the country and men. Thank you for doing this. Um, I've spent most of my adult life working for Lisa Borders in one way or another, so I'm happy to be here today. <laughs> you, you laid out some of the particulars, the statistics about the campaign. I want to put a few of them in context. Um, I was the first African-American woman to be the nominee of any major party in the history of the United States. But I want to point that out because that's silly. It, it is, it's an absurdity that it was 2018 before that hurdle could be crossed. And yet, our work isn't done. Uh, part of the challenge that we faced in our election was that my opponent was also the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. Um, he was the sitting Secretary of State responsible for determining who got to vote in the election. And shockingly, he got the most votes. Um, and, and this is not a, a to disparage the person or persons involved, but it is to raise the question of our democracy. And that's been a big part of what we've been doing since that election, because what we set out to do in this campaign was to bring voices to the table that had never been involved in politics. And if you compare our election in 2018 with the gubernatorial election in 2014, where the grandson of Jimmy Carter was the candidate, 1.1 million people voted for the top of the ticket in 2014. In our election, 1.9 million people voted. But what was so important about this was the composition of the electorate. We set out in this campaign to lift up the marginalized voices that had long been left out of politics. And our intent was to center their experiences as part of the conversation, but not exclude those who are always in the discussion. And so when we would talk about communities of color, when we would talk about young people, when we would talk about millennials, people would say, well, then are you ignoring the white community? And my, part, my answer was no, of course not. We're all Georgians, we're all Americans, we're all part of the conversation, but the conversation has to be broader than the narrowness that our politics had always uh, prescribed. And so in our campaign, we achieved a number of things. We tripled the number of Latinos who voted in the state of Georgia. We tripled... I might want to hold on, we did a lot of stuff. <laughs> we tripled the number of Latinos, we tripled the number of Asian Pacific Islanders, we increased youth participation rates by 139%. We had 1.1 million people who voted in total for Democrats in 2014. In 2018, 1.2 million African Americans voted. And I received the highest percentage of the white vote since any candidate in Georgia since Bill Clinton. Right. That's what we were able to do. Break it down. And so when I'm asked about the election, what I like to say is we won. I didn't get to be the governor, but we changed the electorate. We transformed what it meant to be a part of the body politic in the state of Georgia. And unfortunately, we illuminated some of the fractures in our democracy and the challenges that people face. The fact that African-Americans had a 40% higher wait time in Georgia than any other place in the country, including four-hour wait times in some places. We had more native, more naturalized citizens who had their ballots rejected because 
of some flaws in the way absentee ballots are processed. And we had polling places shut down, more people purged. We had attacks on our democracy. And so my responsibility, not only as a candidate for governor, but as a, a citizen of the United States, is to fight for fair elections across the country because we can't tell people to come to the table if we're not gonna let them sit down and, and participate. So Stacy, most of us know you are an attorney. You finished Yale Law School. Stacy was my attorney when I had the privilege of serving as president of the city council. And this notion of fair, this notion of everyone being enfranchised, this notion that everyone should get to participate, the system clearly is broken in Georgia. And I know you have some specific thoughts about that. Can you tell us about Fair Fight Georgia and about all of those voters who didn't get to vote being enfranchised and counting all of those. Just tell us about Fair Fight Georgia. Sure. Fair Fight Georgia was the organization that we created in the aftermath of the election. Our CEO, my former campaign manager, Lauren Grow-Wargo is here with me today. She's the CEO of the organization. And here's what I want people to understand. Voter suppression is real. Voter fraud is not. And this is an important distinction because we've heard about the myth of voter fraud so much that we believe it to be so but you're more likely to get struck by lightning than there is to be voter fraud in the United States. But voter suppression happens everywhere. It happens across the country. It happened to North Dakota Native Americans when they were denied the right to vote. It happened in Florida. It happened in North Carolina. And here's the way to think about it. Voter suppression has three buckets. There's registration access, limiting who gets to register to vote and whether their registrations actually count. In the state of Georgia, the Secretary of State held up 53,000 applications, 90% of which belonged to people of color, and said that that was just something that happens. It wasn't intentional. And more than half were women. It happens when you tell third parties they're not allowed to register communities, when we know that the best way to register communities of color and poor communities is third party registration. It happens when the speaker, I'm sorry, when the majority leader and the Senate says that more people voting is a problem for democracy. Um, and so you've got registration issues. Then you've got ballot access, polling places getting shut down in Ohio where people who lived in the community were told to go 10 miles outside of their community without public transportation if they wanted to cast their votes. It happened with Georgia shutting down 214 polling places out of 3,000. It happens when people apply for absentee ballots and they never show up, which is what happened in Georgia and Florida. And then the third is not counting the votes. We had absentee ballots that were rejected by, from thousands of voters, assuming they actually ever got them, but we had a range of challenges with people's votes actually being counted. And so Fair Fight Action is an electoral integrity reform organization. Our mission is to make sure there's a fair fight. And this is a bipartisan problem. I have a friend I mean, he and I both agree we live in Georgia. That's the end of our ideological agreement. <laughs> but he has had to have two elections for the same post because they forgot to include thousands of his voters in his election twice. And so this is a Democratic and Republican issue. And if you're an independent, you know, a pox on your house too because we don't really pay attention to you either. And so for us, Fair Fight is designed to not just solve the problem in Georgia, it is designed to address a national issue using Georgia as ground zero. Because under the former Secretary of State, we have a perfected example of voter suppression. Of all three buckets, we've got overflows in all of the buckets. 
we had voters who were not able to vote because they forgot power cords for their machines, while 700 new machines sat in a warehouse. We have places where folks waited, in fact, had to get out of line and go back to work because in Georgia, you don't get time off to vote. Uh, you can take time off, but you don't get paid. Well, if you miss, if you're a shift worker who makes $8 an hour, and in Georgia, our minimum wage is $5.15 an hour, you lose an entire day's wage waiting to vote only to be told you can't because of mistakes in the system. And so Fair Fight is designed to not only solve the problem in Georgia, but to use Georgia as an example for how we can fix the rest of America. Because when any democracy is in trouble, all of our democracy is in trouble. So Stacy, whenever you talk about this stuff, I always hear the passion and the fire in your voice. So I wanna step back a little bit from what you're doing professionally. Let's go personal for just a minute. We all know about the education, Spelman College, Yale Law School, UT Austin for your masters. We know that. So that's education in the traditional formal sense, but the experiences that you had also certainly inform and inspire your work today. Can you talk about your family and what brought you to this point? Where did, what's the root cause, the genesis of all of this? Um, so I'm the daughter, I'm the second of six children. My parents were very aggressive about having children. Um, and so you know, we grew up in Mississippi my mom likes to call us the genteel poor. We had no money, but we watched TV, we watched PBS, and we read books. Uh, because they wanted us to understand that economic circumstances did not dictate your moral core. It didn't dictate your capacity or your future. Uh, they made certain that we volunteered, which we thought was absurd because I'm like, you do realize the lights have been cut off again, or we don't have running water this week, although <laughs> this could have worked. Um, but my parents would wake us up on Saturdays and would take us to volunteer because they wanted us to understand that no matter how little we had, there was someone with less. Our job was to serve that person. Uh, my father's way of putting it was much, much less eloquent than my mom's way. He was like, having nothing is not an excuse for doing nothing. And so I grew up in a family that really took seriously the ethic of service. But they also took seriously the responsibility that you didn't just serve, you solved problems. You didn't get to complain about something unless you had an answer to how you would fix it. Now, you may not be able to implement that answer, but you had to think about what it would be. And I came from parents who were both very involved in the civil rights movement as teenagers. My father was arrested at the age of 15 helping register people to vote in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My mom got in a lot of trouble. She was better at avoiding the police than my dad was. But they raised us to believe that you're responsible for the world around you. And for me, that ethic has always been embedded in how I think about my life. Um, my parents are also really, really bad at making money. Um, they went from being, my mom was a librarian, my dad was a shipyard worker. They went for permanent poverty and became United Methodist ministers when I was in high school. And so I've also watched them commit themselves heart and soul and spirit to doing well by others. And so that also, however, lifted in me a desire to do better economically so that I would have more freedom to make choices and more freedom to do things, and that led me to start small businesses and to write books, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much, but always with an idea that we should have the opportunity, regardless of where we begin, to go as far as we're willing to work to get. Right. Thank God for your parents. We're so delighted that you're yes. here. So when we met- You can clap for my parents, I like them. Oh, we love them. 
So when we met in 2004 through Leadership Georgia, we were all introducing ourselves and you talked about your parents and the genteel poor that your mother espoused and told you all that you were, but you talked about all the reading that you did. And once you finished Spelman, you became a tax attorney, which I was like, damn, how do you do that? But the other side, that was the analytical side, the other side was that you had this creative bent to yourself and you were writing romance novels. So tax attorney on one side, romance novels on the other. How do we reconcile that and how do you do that? <laughs> so look, I'm a tax attorney, romance novelist, politician, legislator, small business owner. I'm a reality show waiting to happen. And we're in Hollywood. So there you go. I'm open to a pitch. Um, now, so, I mean, look, my, my parents told us, do what you want. They never gave, they never dictated what we should be. I'm, I'm the second of six children. My older sister is an anthropologist. My, I have a sister who's a judge, a brother who's a social worker, a brother who is one day going to figure out what he's going to be, and a little sister who's, in, uh, she's a molecular systematist for the CDC. We do not know what she does. <laughs> but for all of us, my parents were very intentional about making sure we read and that they never constrained what we read. So I read Little Women and I read Barbara Cartland. Um, I would read Charles Dickens and uh, you know, I would read uh, Carl Jung and I would read Nora Roberts. And so I was raised to kind of be an investigator of all of the things that were out there. And so when I was in law school, I, you know, I, I loved romance novels growing up. I loved Journal Hospital and soap operas. And I was really bad at dating, so I figured I'd just write my own romance. <laughs> uh, so I used my ex-boyfriend's dissertation, uh, wrote a romantic suspense novel based on it. I put him in prison in the book, and he languishes there to this day. <laughs> it was a very bad breakup. He was really obnoxious. <laughs> And I sold that book at the same time that I published my first article on the operational dissonance of the unrelated business income tax exemption in the U.S. tax code. Say what? So I wrote the first one is Stacey Abrams and I wrote the romance of Selena Montgomery because no one is going to read romance by Alan Greenspan. And for me it was, they're, they're different halves of the same coin, which is that any work that you do, you're telling a story. You need people to believe that their interests are connected to what is happening. And the best way to do that is to weave a narrative that brings them in. And if you want to read about the operational distance of the income tax code, it's really scintillating, I promise. But for me, whether it's writing memoir, writing romance, writing tax articles, it's all about making sure, or, or being a politician, it's about making sure that people can hear themselves or empathize with what they're finding. But it was also about the fact that I wanted to have different lives and no one ever recruited me for the CIA, so I had to do it myself and write spy novels and action adventure novels. So romance novels, though, are not the only thing that you have written. Your recent book, Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Change. Are we going to see that in paperback soon or see it out? So tell us about the book. What was your intention there? And highlight the themes. So in 2017, I wrote Minority Leader, which is really, uh, I like to call it half memoir, half how-to, uh, because it's really the story of how do you come from spaces where you are not considered the norm, when you are outside of power, outside of resources, outside of contention. 
and I talked about the ways I make mistakes. I spent a lot of time, if you're running for office, do not do this. Uh, most political books are about, you know, sort of how great I am and how wonderfully I did. I wrote a lot about how much I suck. And, but for me it was important because I was having an opportunity to run for an office, but I didn't want people to see that as the beginning or the end of the story. And I wanted folks to understand the work it takes, but that that work can be done by anyone. But I also want people to understand that if it didn't work, that wasn't gonna be the end of my story. Because often, you know, especially in, in you know, films and movies, you have the heroic arc where you, you have your challenges, you get to your second act, the challenges get complicated, it looks like your hero's gonna fail, and then suddenly, deus ex machina, things are great. That did not work. Uh, and so for me, writing the book was really about talking about what happens in the third act, but also what happens in the fourth act and the fifth act, and helping give people a roadmap to figure out what they can do. And so I spend a lot of time talking about ambition, talking about the difference between humility and self-effacement. You can be humble without being self-deprecating, that you can make mistakes and still recover, but also sometimes you've got to hack your way into success because the normative approaches don't work. I've published the book and I, for the first time in human history, I was a politician who had a book who was accused of doing something unlawful. So my opponent in the primary had a friend file an ethics complaint against me to say that it was unlawful, that was a, I was giving myself a campaign contribution by making a living writing. And out of an abundance of caution, we left it alone. My publishers were not happy. I'm the only person they had who was on the cover of the time cover of Time Magazine and could not sell a book. Uh, and so they have agreed to forgive me and they're gonna release it as a paperback at the end of March as lead from the outside. Love that. So let's fast forward to now. We at Time's Up are always trying to ensure that women have opportunity and they reach their full potential. And we were delighted to see that Leader Pelosi and Senator Schumer invited you to do the democratic response to the State of the Union. What? So we know you can't give us a sneak preview of what you're going to say, but tell us what it was like to have that conversation with them and to receive that invitation you're the first African-American woman, I think, to get that invitation, and you are currently not an elected official, so two firsts. We don't want that to be the last of you or the last for women, but talk a little bit about those conversations and what it feels like now to be on the national stage, not just running for office, but speaking to the American people. Well, I'm going to hydrate first, and that's very important. Uh, Y'all got it, good. Um, no, I, I was incredibly proud of the campaign that we ran. Not necessarily because of the role that I played, but because of what it signaled. Not only did we run a campaign that emphasized the importance of the diversity of our electorate, we had a campaign that actually reflected that diversity. We had a campaign that em employed more members of the LGBTQ community than any campaign we can find in Georgia history. We had representatives from every racial and ethnic community and every religious community. And we respected and lifted that up. When uh, Leader Schumer pulled me, uh, you know, reached out to me about doing it, he said, you know, they were 
driven to invite me in part because of the campaign that I'd run. And for me, that's much less about what I said or what I did and much more about what it meant. Because we tried to run a campaign that wasn't about cult of personality. When things are about who I am, then when I disappoint someone, the whole thing's over. But really building infrastructure, building opportunity is about making sure that people see themselves in what you do and they feel ownership sufficient to allow for foibles in the person. And so you know, I am terrified about what I'm gonna have to say. Uh, a lot of people know it <laughs> that I'm gonna be giving the speech. And there's a moment of terror, not because I don't wanna make a mistake, but because I know so many people want the opportunity to rebut what we've seen happening in the last few years. But we have to remember that what we've seen in the last few years is the culmination of what's been happening for decades. And that one person who has illuminated how terrible and horrific some of our policies are, he stands as proxy for a lot more people who've been doing this for a long time. And so my responsibility is to give voice to those who do not believe they are seen or heard, but also to give remedy. It's insufficient to simply you know, scold what is wrong. You've got to offer solutions and opportunities. And we may not agree on the solutions, but we have to have people willing to call them out so that we start to take steps and take action. And I got to do all that in 10 minutes. So yeah, anybody got any tips? I'm listening. <laughs> So it's often been said when people are looking for leaders in any sector and any industry, we cannot find women. We cannot find those who are educated enough, who have developed enough expertise, who have the enthusiasm or the willingness or the desire to fully participate in our processes, be they in the public sector or be they in the private sector. We refute this at Time's Up. And Stacey Abrams stands as a model and an example of some badass women. Somebody say amen. So we certainly want to invite you to watch State of the Union and watch Stacey, because we're all going to be sending her the positive energy as she delivers the democratic response. But we invite all of you to be civically engaged, not only with her campaigns that she'll be running in the future, Hint, hint. What we want to do is ensure that everyone is fully engaged in the process. So for Time's Up, we invite you to join the journey. We understand that sexual assault is merely a symptom of a much greater problem. The imbalance of power between men and women. The same could be said for the public discourse and the imbalance of power those who have it today and those who are not fully enfranchised and should be. So on behalf of Stacy and myself, thank you for listening, but more importantly, thank you in advance for all the work that you will do to join the journey. Are you with us? I'm gonna tell them how to find us. Stacy. Final word. So I want to say thank you to Lisa for asking really intrusive questions. Thank you so much. Um, but I also want to invite you all to join us in Fair Fight. We are, we are grounded in Atlanta and we're grounded in Georgia. But what we are doing is going to have an impact nationally. We are filing a lawsuit that 
if successful in the federal courts, will transform elections across the country. If you will go to fairfightaction.com, uh, we'd love to have you sign up. We'd love to talk to you about it because this is so critical. It's not just about what's happening in Georgia. Georgia's gonna be a battleground state. And if we want to, for those of you who share my political affiliation, if you, we want difference in 2020, we've gotta fix elections now. Uh, because the other side has said what they intend to do. They've shown us. We have to fight back. And if you aren't a Democrat, if you want democracy to be robust and resilient, our goal is to do so. And that's why Fair Fight is a nonpartisan organization. But it's fairfightaction.com. We'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to share more about it. But most importantly, I want to say thank you to my friend Lisa for making sure that women are made safe across the country. Thank you so much. Yeah,